This week on Writers, Inc. Um, I think a lot of it has to do with, um, I, I just love life in general because it's so bizarre. You can go almost anywhere in the world, you know, small town USA even, and just hear the most bizarre stories. And there's no way that I could possibly come up with the truth of some of these bizarre things that have happened in our history. Whether you are traditionally published or indie, writing a good book is only the first step in becoming a successful author. The days of just turning a manuscript into your editor and walking away are gone. If you want to succeed in today's publishing world, you need to understand every aspect of the business. Editing, formatting, marketing, contracts. It all starts with a good book. Then the real work begins. Join international best-selling author J.D. Barker and indie powerhouse Jay Thorne as they gain unique insight and valuable advice from the most prolific and accomplished authors in the business. The publishing world is changing, adapting. Do you have what it takes to become a full-time writer? If you're willing to do the work, we'll give you the tools. Get your notepad out. School's in session. This is Writer's In. Good afternoon, JD. What's going on, man? Hey, man. So I'm watching my, my Facebook ads very closely, and I'm noticing that every day the cost is ticking up a little bit. And I, I know what it is. It's political ads. They're just... They're, oh. I, I remember this from... from It was either last year or the year before, but like I noticed this huge like spike in cost. Um, and, and I reached out to Mark Dawson, and, and he brought up that you know anytime there's a political, any kind of election thing going on, um, they just completely saturate Facebook and the other markets, and it, it just causes everybody's numbers to just go completely out of whack. So... If there are authors out there that are advertising for the first time on Facebook, that's and they're seeing their numbers, you know, skew that. That's most likely what it is. I just wanted to put that out there because I, I had no idea the first time I saw it. I, I don't know if you're running into that too. Well, I um, I'm not I'm not running Facebook ads right now, but I remember hitting that in 2016. I just don't remember it starting in August. <laughs> Yeah, they're just um, it, it's it's like um, you know the 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 Christmas decorations, you know, that used to show up in the stores like right at Thanksgiving, and like now they're they're probably out there now, like in July and August, they're probably rolling them out like every year. It just creeps up a little bit earlier, and and this seems to be the same thing. They're just you know they're, they're pounding the the advertising cycle. Mm. Um, so anyway, I just figured I would throw that out there. Um, and, and there's something else I just wanted to mention, and this is more of like a, a housekeeping or just an experience thing that I've kind of run into, but I, I've noticed in the last couple of weeks, a lot of podcasts have been focusing on um, posting content to various web services, um, you know, whether it's, it's Patreon or Facebook um, or um, Wattpad, uh, those types of things. Um, I, I think it was six figure authors that I was listening to recently where they were, they were talking about it. And they had mentioned um, a year ago, somebody had pointed out that the Patreon user license basically allows them to use your content. Um, and, and this is something they'd probably, you know, never do. I mean, we'd like to say they would never do it, but they, they could. Um, and, and this may have changed, but the, the reason I'm bringing it up is you kind of have to look at all these things very closely. Like there was a lawsuit a couple of years back because a woman noticed that her, her picture, something she had posted on Facebook had shown up in somebody's ad campaign um, and she had never signed off on it. And Facebook basically has the right to do that. They can grab any image yes. that you post out there and they can turn around and they can sell it to somebody. Um, Patreon's licensing agreement and some of these other other ones like Wattpad have similar language in there. And it's not there because they, they plan to do this. It's there because it's necessary for them in order to have the platform that they have to be able to share your information in a, a fairly public forum. They, they have to have this language in there. But where it causes problems that I've run into is with um, 
other an ancillary things. Like if you try to get a TV or a film deal and they find out that the story or even a, a traditional publishing deal and they find out that the story has been published on something like Patreon, uh, some of them will back away completely because they don't want to risk third party hands, you know, possibly making a grab at something. Um, you know, if, if you have a, a runaway hit or they, they put a movie out, they don't want to risk somebody else coming in there saying, hey, wait a minute, we own a piece of that, um, which based on the, the language they, they could possibly do. So it, they never have. And I seriously doubt they ever would. But the fact that that is out there as a possibility, it, it's, it scares some of these people away. So just just something to be cognizant of if you're going to post anything in, in any of these forums. Good. That's a good point. And I don't know. I don't know if this is in the same area, but I've also heard that about posting stuff even on your own website or blog if you're trying to get an agent or traditional route that you're you're technically publishing it even though it's not in a, in a book so you have to be really careful about where you put things that you eventually want to sell yeah, in general, all you know, the publishers really want to be first to the table. You know, putting anything like a like you know, that story out there publicly. They if if they find out that it's been anywhere, you know, it, it can either nix the deal or it can degrade. You know, what they're willing to pay for it. Um, so you just you have to be careful with that. Um, and and even you know, a lot of people they will post you know like chapters of their novel as they go on something like Patreon or Wattpad, and then they pull it down when they decide to actually go out there and publish it. Like even though you're pulling it down, it, it's already happened. And and anything online is recorded in a million different places whether you pull it down or not, you know, once, once it's happened, there's no taking that back. So just be very, very careful of it. Uh, is what I'm bringing up. Oh, and something else, and, and this is a little uh, completely different topic, but we mentioned it last week. Joanna Penn had, had brought up GPT-3 a couple of yeah. times. Um, did you hear that little episode she put together with her, her fake voice basically talking to another person? Yeah, fake with voice Mark. For, yeah. Yeah. That that is crazy. Um, yep. if, if anybody out there is interested at all in this technology, uh, you definitely want to check that out. It, it's only you know it's it's fairly short. I think the conversation basically between two computers takes place for about five or six minutes, and then they they jump in afterwards and talk about it. Uh, but it just shows you just how how fast this technology is evolving, and and it's going to be out of place in you know fairly soon. I think where it's going to be able to read an audiobook in a convincing manner. It's just, at this point, it's just it's lacking, uh, yeah, emotion and just a you know the little subtle nuances that that still make us human. Um, but I'm sure once our robot overlords figure out how to get around that, you know, that's gonna that's gonna go away too. Yeah, I'd be curious to see, man, because I I don't know, like I. Uh, there's no way I could listen to that. And I know that wasn't the point. Like they were just showing like how far along it came, but it felt really robotic and artificial to me. And, it, it and, I, and I've heard a lot of people say that, um, well, yeah, but you know, it's, it's, it's not going to be long, but I, I don't know, part of me, and I, this might be completely irrational, but part of me wonders like if, if that will ever happen, like will it ever be possible for some type of AI to be able to replicate the, the personal dynamic between two people like you and I, you know, we've been talking for over a year. We've been doing this podcast together. It's not as, it's not as simple as just matching up our voices in, in synchronicity. There's more to it. And I wonder if that's an intangible that, that can't be cracked. I could be completely wrong though. No, there's, there's a lot of things that just fall back on intuition, you know, just yeah. the, the having a conversation and just our, our emotional reactions, whether they're, they're subtle or not. It, it honestly made me think of data from Star Trek. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, like he, he basically was a computer that didn't have emotion and he would try to pretend to laugh and things like that. And, and he could, convincingly do it as as a recording you know like you could basically play a recording of a laugh and that's kind of how this felt um you know the human brain reacts to the, the language and you know we raise our voice we lower our voice there's little nuances there that a computer just can't do at this point um and i and, I, and like, like you said i don't know that it can be done through training 
you know, you can record as many, you know, different samples as you want, but you know, at some point that computer is going to need to figure out how to take those samples and put them in a real life situation. And right now it's definitely not there. And who's to say, you know, you know what it's going to be like another five or 10 years. I I could, I I see it eventually happening. Um, But when a computer is able to make that conscious decision, that's when I really get scared of computers. Yeah. Yeah, Like I think audiobooks are different than podcasts, right? Like, cause an audiobook is scripted. And so you can, you could train it to, to develop whatever sort of cadence or delivery you want, but a real time interaction between two humans with history and baggage and dynamics like that. I don't know. I don't know if that's ever going to get to a place where it's going to sound natural to us. No, but I do see it working for, for textbooks and things like that, mm-hmm. you know, pr- pretty early on. And, and hopefully that's going to bring some of the costs down because, you know, textbooks in general are just very expensive to produce because the marketplace is so limited and, you know, audiobook for a textbook is the same thing. So hopefully this will help drive that cost down. Just like, you know, the eBooks have, have lowered the cost of textbooks, you know, substantially, you know, maybe that's where we'll see it come into play first. Yeah, it could be. So you had reached out um, to uh, HWA on healthcare, right? I did. Yeah. Uh, there were um, there are a few things I want to catch people up on, and I want to ask you a question about my screenplay. So the um, the HWA and the science fiction and fantasy writers, and I think if several other associations, are now offering the uh, ability to get um, private health insurance um, with, without going through an employer. So it's sort of a good news, bad news kind of thing. I don't know if it's necessarily bad news, but I. I spoke, um, I spoke to someone, I spoke to the insurance brokers who are running this, and that's the key. So they are brokers, which means they are, uh, they're going out on your behalf and they are negotiating with private, uh, different insurance companies to get you the best coverage at the best rate, depending on where you live. So I, at first I thought it was like some type of group rate policy kind of thing where, um, you know, everyone comes in and then that drives the cost down. That is not, that is not the case. Um, so I would say that for absolutely for ease of use, if you, um, if you're in one of these organizations, get in touch with the, the brokers or the contact people and talk to them. They're more than willing to set up a, a phone conversation. It was really easy, very personal. And I, I definitely recommend it. The other side of the coin there is um, you can still go out and negotiate your own health insurance coverage privately directly with the companies who offer the coverage. Um, so, so that hasn't changed. Now, whether or not the brokers have a little more leverage than, say, a, an individual does, I don't know. But the brokers are also going to be taking a certain percentage. So it, it, it's a trade-off there. But the bottom line is if, if you're looking uh, for health coverage, whether you're in one of these organizations or not, um, these brokers will help. Uh, and if you are below a certain income bracket um, or above it, I should say, you're not eligible for uh, the Affordable Care Act. And so you're, you're kind of in this group where you're, where you're on your own. So um, it was promising. I have some, I have some things to check out. Um, I don't know if I'll go that route or not, depending on how long my wife can last at her job, <laughs> but because uh, we get coverage through, you know, uh, through her employer. But we'll see. It was, it was a good talk. It sounds like, if I'm hearing this right, if you know, if they've got the ability to get you any type of savings, that little bit of savings is probably going to be eaten up by the commission that they're bringing in in order to get you that savings. It could be. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So, if you're willing to go out there and, and really put in the work and the time to research the different plans, you'll most likely get something on your own, competitive or or, or possibly better. Um, if you're lazy like me, you know, where you like to just pick up the phone and have somebody else do it, or you just don't have the time, like th- this might be a viable option, but you're probably going to be paying a premium. 
Is that? I, I, I think that's a fair assessment. And I, I'm with you. Okay. Like I would much rather give them a slice than, than have to do all the research on my own uh, because they're already tapped into it. Like they know that they know the companies, they know the coverage, they know all, all of the information that you would have to educate yourself on. So in my opinion, I think it's worth going through a broker, but you know, your mileage may vary. Well, if, if anything, it gives you another option, right? Just it one does. more, one more thing to look at. Yeah, it does. Cool. Okay. Uh, so who do we have on today? Oh, I got uh, two more quick things for us first. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, so I mentioned last week that uh, I have a nonfiction series coming out. So that's now out. I'll have a link in the show notes. Uh, it's tied into the Career Author Podcast, and the series is called Nine Things Career Authors Don't Do. And I'm, I'm trying to go for the Steve Scott uh, model, which is really short books that are highly focused. So Steve Scott did a, a bunch with productivity. They were very successful. So it's a bit of an experiment. I have co-writers. I'm running ads to it. Um, I've got uh, uh, Dirk from Prestazon talking to my AMS guy. Um, my AMS guy is setting up the ads, and he's going to use Prestazon to, to monitor them. So hopefully within a month or two, I'll be able to come back and give people some solid data on not only the nonfiction market, but sort of how you can get your AMS ads and maybe Prestazon to work together. Okay. So, that, so well, that's we... just a, a quick announcement I wanted to let people what? know. It sounds like we need to get the artificial Jay Thorne to interview the real Jay Thorne oh, to you discuss go. your books. <laughs> I'm going to have to check them out because I'm, I'm curious to see what, what I shouldn't be doing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you could write a few of those yourself. Uh, yeah. Uh, so the, the last thing I had too before we get into the guest was a quick question on the screenplay. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm going to bite the bullet and buy a final draft. Uh, I, I downloaded the trial and... A uh, little bit of a learning curve, but I, I think I've got to figure it out, and I think it's something I can use for first drafts. But here's my situation. I, I just took all the, all the words I had, 34,000 words, and I dumped them into final draft, and it, it just a raw dump like that. It's like 150, 160 pages, which I okay. know is significantly longer than sort of the sweet spot we had talked about before. So a couple things. Um, I, you know, I had an outline for this, so I don't have any throwaway scenes. Like every scene serves a very specific purpose. So I think it would be hard for me to start, start cutting scenes from the screenplay. In mm -hmm. addition, I'm thinking like, well, you know, 120 minutes for a movie, but what if it's like a, a television, television series? So what would you do? Like, do I just need to go through and like format and tighten up the, the the draft in final draft and not worry about the page count yet? Or do I start cutting things if I can? Uh, here's the thing, like it, knowing what your idea is, I think it would fit really well as a, as a series. I, I think you could break it up into multiple episodes, um, but that's going to create a lot of extra work, I think, on your part in order to do that, because now you've got to create, you know, six different cliffhangers or yeah. eight or 10 or 12 or whatever you decide. Um, I don't know that I would go that route. And I, I do know that it's fairly tight right now, um, even though your page count may, may be up there. So I would probably just continue with it as is. Okay. Just try to, you know, even if it ends up, you know, being a, you know, 150 page screenplay, uh, at least you've got it all down there. Um, it's a lot easier for somebody to come in and whittle things away than it is. You know, if, if you were on the opposite side of that and you were at 70 pages, that's a much bigger problem right. than, than coming in at 150, 160. Um, and, and knowing that the screenplay isn't really your end goal, it's just kind of a byproduct. I, you know, I, I would focus on that. Okay, good. That was, that was what I was thinking too. That was my gut was just like, don't worry about that now. Just get the story in there, see where it ends up and uh, take it from there. So I am curious though, why final draft over the, the template that's in Scrivener? Did you find limitations with Scrivener or you just... You know, I, I honestly was thinking, I'm thinking about it more as an investment in my future. Like if, if this is going to be part of my process going forward, 
I can easily share uh, a final draft document or invite a collaborator into it as opposed to sending a static PDF. Um, so I'm looking at it as a, more of an investment as opposed to ease of use. I think the Scrivener template would, would work just fine, but having the ability to send a final draft file to a, a producer or something, that might, that might be worth it in the future. Yeah, I mean, from a collaboration standpoint, that's that's huge because if, if somebody actually does bite on it and, you know, the, most likely they're not going to just buy your, your screenplay. They're going to say, hey, we've got so-and-so, he's experienced at this, we'd love to get him involved or her involved. And, and you know, the ability to be able to just, you know, flip, flip a couple of switches and bring that person directly into the document, that that, right. that is huge. Yeah, um, and 95% so yeah, of the industry uses final draft. So it's a pretty good chance that whoever would be working on it would already have that program too. What was the cost on it? I'm, I'm not even sure. It's where uh, it's uh, two hundred bucks. Just a one-time thing, or yeah, okay. Which is not. I mean, it's not. It's no, it's not a little bad. pricey, but it's not like out of out of out of my range or anything. So tax write-off. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, Heather Graham. Yeah, this is uh, this is gonna be exciting. Um, you've met Heather before, I think. Yeah, I've met her a bunch of times. She, she's a staple at Thriller Fest. Um, I've, I've seen her at BoucherCon down in New Orleans. Um, she's she's one of those people. She's been in the industry for a very long time. I mean, anytime you walk into a drugstore or grocery store, you look at the paperback rack, you know, there's a good chance there's five or six novels from Heather there. Um, I, I bet you if you were to pull her aside and just showed her the covers and hid the title, she probably would be able to, be able to name maybe half of them because <laughs> she, she's got so many books out there. Like I can't hundreds. imagine. I, I think yeah, it's hundreds, I, right? It's crazy. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure at some point she's going to hopefully in the interview go into her writing process because I know she's got a house full of kids or she did too. So the fact that she could churn those out, you know, while dealing with all that. That, you know, more, more power to her. Um, but yeah, she's been in the industry for a very long time and just kind of rolled with it and, and done very well. So I'm, I'm curious to hear what she's got to say. Cool. Well, let's get into it and uh, we'll talk about it on the flip side. All right. Here she is, Heather Graham. So July 21st, pretty exciting. Deadly Touch is coming out. Can you tell us about the new book? Aha. Uh -huh. Well, let me see. I'm trying to think there's one. <laughs> I don't believe this. I just blanked on my title. There is another one that just came out in May and it relates to the one that comes out in July <laughs> and the one that comes out in September. You could talk about uh, the Aries. <laughs> <laughs> there is a set of crew of Hunter novels. Um, I do three each, each year that come out in May, July and September. And um, I, have, I have a great deal of fun with them. I, I love getting to work on these. Yeah, it's it's fantastic. I mean, you, um, I, I'm just kind of in awe of you, honestly. I, I mean, you have, you've published 200 some novels, you've sold 600 million books. Like, how do you challenge yourself? Like, how do you, how do you come to the page and, 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 and sort of make it uh, a challenge? Um, I think a lot of it has to do with, um, I, I just love life in general yeah. because it's so bizarre. <laughs> you can go almost anywhere in the world, you know, small town USA even, and just hear the most bizarre stories. And there's no way that I could possibly come up with the truth of some of these bizarre things that have happened in our history. Wonderful and not so wonderful. Um, and I use that a lot and I use people a lot. I, kn I know years ago, one of the things that fascinated me the most, um, one of my son's friends became a fabricator and she works at, I think it's Legacy Studios now, it's the old Stan Winston Studios. And she creates things. So um, she was very sweet. She managed to get us a tour one day 
And it was absolutely bizarre because you have this hideous, creepy, terrifying zombie standing right next to the Zyco pig, Geico pig. And um, I just, I thought her job was so fascinating that I had to create a character like her. Um, and then again, like I said, they're just, you can go anywhere. Um, a couple places I, I like particularly, I'm from Miami. Um, and one of my favorite things about being from Miami is that I'm close to the Keys and I've spent my you know whole life going down to the Keys and Key West and the Keys in between. But Key West has some of the most bizarre stories you're ever going to hear. <laughs> Um, New Orleans, Salem, Mass. But I mean, really, these places where bizarre things happen can be almost anywhere. So I, I rely a, a lot on um, what I discover from various people and going various places. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because I, I think we share a mutual passion for the city of New Orleans. And I'd love to uh, ask you a little bit about that. Um, can you tell us about Heather Graham's Vampire Ball and how that started? Well, the Vampire Ball actually originally took place for um, Catherine Falk's um, Romantic Times convention. And uh, we started at the time I was doing a series of vampire books and we were trying to figure out something to do that would be entertaining. And a lot of the concept of it was at a convention, some people are able to, um, they have things to do. They are going out with their agent, they're going out with their editor, this type of thing. But a lot of people are there for the convention and, you know, really don't have these associations. So I wanted something that everyone could come to and have a good time. And then also wanted it something that would be a benefit. And since they were vampire novels, we decided that um, we would use our party all the time to benefit the Elizabeth Glaser Pediatric AIDS Foundation. And so we did that for years. Um, had a great deal of fun. I, going backwards a little bit, uh, I majored in theater. And when I got out of college, I spent three to four years in dinner theater before I had so many children I couldn't afford to anymore. <laughs> uh, so one of the things that's a great deal of fun for me is at these parties, we put on little skits and then we have dancing and things. So we have something, we're called the Slush Pile Players. And uh, we also have a Slush Pile Band. <laughs> so we have... Um, we have a lot of fun doing it, and hopefully over the years we've raised a fair amount of money. Um, now, Catherine's convention doesn't exactly exist anymore. Um, there is a new convention, Book Lovers, which is a great convention, but it, the party doesn't actually fit in with it. So we have been doing more of a vampire party in uh, New Orleans every time, uh, every year we have done something called writers for New Orleans, um, which came up right after Katrina, uh, because I had a friend who owned a carriage company who came up to me and said, oh my God, you've got to be able to do something. And I wasn't sure what I could do. But a friend of mine, Connie Perry, was with me and we figured, okay, we're going to try to have a writer's conference. And then the question, of course, was what kind of writers? And we decided any kind of writers. And then maybe you don't write, but uh, perhaps you read. So we try to have lots of book giveaways and fun things like that. And then even if you don't read or write, if you're a companion, maybe you'd like a party. So on Friday nights, we do a themed party. And on Saturday night, we do one of our little stage dinner theater shows. And also, you know, try to keep it open enough, like especially the first years, um, we try to keep an open time so that like lunch was out on the city, please go somewhere and spend your money, um, that type of thing. So 
A lot of it has to do with, um, I guess, because I never really wanted to let go of the theater background. In fact, we had a great deal of fun at the last BoucherCon in Dallas. We put on our first dinner theater there and had a lot of fun. We had Charlene Harris in it, and that was her first time, and she said she couldn't believe I managed to drag her on stage, <laughs> but she was wonderful. <laughs> Daniel Palmer, Brad Park. Um, we have, uh, Alex, uh, Alexandra Sokoloff has been involved, Harley Jane Kozak, and our, our drummer, our magnificent drummer oftentimes is F. Paul Wilson. So we drag in whoever we can because of course you want it to be the writers. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I know things are crazy now, but uh, is the vampire ball going to happen this year? We don't know. Yeah. Um, we will find out. We've been talking to the hotel. In fact, it's, it's a, we all know we're in a difficult situation right now. Uh, one of the hardest for me is my son had a baby and I had just gotten all of <laughs> the shots that his pediatrician had asked people to have before coming to see him when this kind of broke. So we have, I've yet to see oh. uh, <laughs> this new grandchild, but uh I, he's in, well, he's not in Chicago. They're outside Chicago, but she would have to fly into O'Hare. And I am thinking that it might be a while before people want to go into major cities such as, if I didn't live here, I wouldn't suggest you come to Miami. Um, I don't think New York would be a good place <laughs> to go right now. Um, and I'm wondering about New Orleans. So we're kind of trying to watch um, what will happen in the next couple of months. Um, you know, you have to, it's like anything else, we have to hope for the best and prepare for the worst. But the hotel has us on, on hold. We're waiting to see if we can push it possibly into the winter months. And then if so, um, yes, we will, we will have our, our different parties. We, have, we really do have so much fun planning them and then hoping uh, we have done themes such as at the Friday night party for one of the anniversaries of Gettysburg. Uh, we had we, we had a great time. We had I, my three sons. I made them dress up as uh, they were Grant, Stuart, and I, who else did I have? Um, I just blanked on who. Oh, and Custer. And then uh, we had F. Paul Wilson, which was really funny because he's from New Jersey. He was Robert E. Lee, but boy, he looked great. And... <laughs> There was Marina Davis. Somebody else was Mary Todd Lincoln. You know, we tried to fill in a lot of these things. And then there's a questionnaire. You're allowed to ask people so many questions. You can't ask them who they are. Um, and then we give away a couple of, uh, at the time, I, I believe, uh, I just blanked on what we call these things. We would give away uh, uh, books, not books, but what do you, oh my God, I can't believe I blanked on the name <laughs> of this. What does one read online with? <laughs> like a Kindle? Ah, Kindle. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> we would, you know, the prizes would be a couple of Kindles and things like that. So um, my, it's truly funny at this time because I just love history. My parents were immigrants. I did not have a dog in the fight. <laughs> so I'm certainly glad that we are one United States. But I remember my son coming up to me afterwards, my oldest son telling me he would do anything in the world for me, but please not ask him to walk down Bourbon Street as general grant again <laughs> so i figured okay i won't be doing that yeah um, i could imagine that would be a, a quite an interesting stroll i didn't even think about it <laughs> it was just just an anniversary and then of course we, we have booklets that we give away that have bits of history on people um 
so it's more, I love history. That's one of my, my favorite things is, is learning about history because that is, you know, where I said, where you wind up with these legends or these truths about people that are so bizarre um, and so much fun to use when you're working. Yeah. Do you do, um, do you do a lot of research for your books because you're interested in history? I do. I do. Um, especially because, and it's funny too, because a lot of t the time people will think, oh, well, writing historical novels is so much harder than writing contemporary because you do have to, you know, look so much up or do so much research. But I've found that to be true of anything you're doing contemporary. Uh, very early on in my career, I had someone looking at downtown Miami from um, Star Island, which one can't actually do because there's another island in between. Um, and I've lived here my whole life. <laughs> so one would think I would have known this and I did. So some doesn't always matter what you're doing. Um, you sometimes have to look it up. And then in the same token, I'm incredibly grateful to international thriller writers because they have gotten us into the FBI offices in New York so many times. Um, and they have people there who have responded to us so that we are able to use, um, you know, we're able to use a lot of things that we learn at these places and they bring in the ATF and, you know, we get to bring in um, all kinds of officers who can, can give you what you, I mean, I have never been a police officer, nor have I been in the FBI nor in the CIA. So it's wonderful when you're able to meet someone who has been. I also love, if anybody's interested in it, the Police Writers Academy. Uh, Lee Laughlin runs that. He was a, a police officer for years and years and years, and he's still friends with 18 million police officers and everyone else. And the people he brings in and what you can learn from them is, is incredible. Yeah, and and I would imagine that your your life experience and your research serves you well because you write in many different genres. Was that a an evolution of your career? Or was that something you were intentional about? How how did that come about? Well, I think it came about mainly just because I I was seriously a lucky kid. My parents were major league readers, both of them. With my dad, it tended to be he had been Navy, so he had a lot of military books and things like that. My mother loved fiction, but she was also the one who, in a way she got me in trouble because she brought books from Ireland. And I had a fight with the teacher one day because I told her Harbor was spelled H-A-R-B-O-U-R and I could prove it to her, it was in a book. Um, so then of course I had to, <laughs> I had to go to the principal's office and um, I had to learn that <laughs> in school in the United States, you will use American spellings <laughs> if you want to go forward. But between them, they just had wonderful books on so many things. So I read everything. They were also, they were huge on Lovecraft. They were huge on Poe. Um, <clears throat> they just, they just had so many books that I don't think I really had a grasp of, you know, sticking to one genre. I broke in with, um, I had written a couple of short horror stories uh, that had gotten published. I think Twilight Zone and uh, something for the now defunct of Miami News, and it was not my fault, I promise. Um, <laughs> there, uh, and I did love that genre. And, but I broke in with a category romance. And at the same time, I had been working on a historical, but the category was huge at the time. They were getting out amazing numbers of those books. And so the house I was with encouraged me to keep doing those and didn't really want to look at 
um, a historical novel. And then uh, someone who owned a magazine at the time uh, came down to visit someone in Florida and met me. And there was an ad in the magazine that said Liza Dawson of Pinnacle Books is looking for historical novels with a voice similar to Heather Graham's. And I thought, oh my God, <laughs> I can do that. I can do that. So I sent the historical novels off to them and they were wonderful. They published them. I always loved vampires from the old hammer days and everything else. Loved Anne Rice. Um, so I just wanted to do a vampire novel. I got into doing that. Um, and the, the crew of hunters, uh, I think I'm not even sure I've lost count myself. I think these are going to be 31, 32, and 33, something like that. Um, they change, each changes, but everybody involved in it works for the crew of hunters, which is a special unit of the FBI. And it's kind of unique because everyone in it is actually able to speak with the dead when the dead choose to be spoken to. Um, but that's really allowed me to go in so many directions. Um, one of them, and I'm terrible with my own titles, it's horrible. <laughs> one of them, um, I bring back Poe, and I always found Poe fascinating because he did disappear for three days. And when he was found delirious, no one ever found out what happened to him during the three days. Oh, wow. Uh, I think one of the theories is that they were trying for voter fraud. He was found in clothing that was not his own. Um, and he was alive when he was found, but he never became coherent. And then he passed away. So I found that to be so fascinating. Uh, and just everything about his life was, was interesting. And that's one of the really fun things about the crew hunters is working with different ideas. Uh, in this series, one of them is someone who dreams things and then they have happened or will happen. Um, one of them goes into a state of regression and in the state of regression, she doesn't regress. She winds up in someone else's mind seeing them be murdered. Um, I know, gosh, this is so terrible. I have a bad time because the things coming out this year were turned in last year. Oh. <laughs> so, <Yeah>. so <laughs> I, I, yeah. <laughs> I am blanking on so many it's understandable. It's, it's horrible, and forgive me. It's understandable. You have you have quite a back catalog <laughs> to keep track of. <laughs> I know. Sometimes I feel badly though because somebody asked me once upon a time I had written a book that had a great deal of Egyptian history in it, and somebody asked me a question, and I was just, oh, wow, I have no idea now. <laughs> you know, that was. I think that actually was at the time it was 20 years ago and no, I don't remember. Yeah. yeah. No, but I, I love that history too. I think, I think ancient Egypt is fascinating. Yeah. You, uh, you touch certainly upon a lot of elements of the paranormal in your writing. Have you had uh, instances or times in your life where you've, where you've sensed it, felt it, seen something, heard something? I believe I'm simply the world's worst coward. Um, <laughs> And that might have something to do with it. We have had things. I mean, we've done things. For one, we've done things which have been a tremendous amount of fun. Uh, one, I think it was when I came out with the first book in the series, the company arranged for us to have a seance at the House of the Seven Gables. And that kind of turned out to be interesting because their original uh, medium got sick and they brought someone else in, but they also brought her in for the cocktail party 
party that preceded the seance. So she had a chance to chat with everyone there. And, but the cutest thing about it was one of the young men from the news station that was filming it was so excited. And the medium just said something about, I'm, I'm, I'm smelling Italian food. Um, now you're in Massachusetts. <laughs> you're gonna smell a lot of Italian food in Massachusetts. But he got very, very excited. Oh, that had to be him, that had to be him. And then she described a grandmother and it's kind of like, oh, it has to be my grandmother, it has to be my grandmother. And, you know, it could have been, but uh, my husband's Italian and has 18 freaking million relatives in Massachusetts. <laughs> so it definitely could have been, uh, you know, any of them cooking. So <laughs> it just, it was funny. And then the thing, my husband and my oldest son were there and they're both terrible skeptics. So they had a, a, a shot of them two sitting in the back of the room with their arms crossed over their chests exactly the same. And I was like, oh, no, no, <laughs> don't put that out there. But, but it was fun, you know, and it's interesting to see how people did work. Um, <clears throat> that I, I totally enjoyed it. Uh, and I do. Um, we all get to do a lot of fun things because of it. Friends of mine, the Peace River Ghost Trackers, um, arranged for us to have a tour, a private tour. We just had one of their people with us while they did various tests with their equipment. And um, I think the Queen Mary probably was one of the creepiest because we purposely didn't know much of the history of the ship and did know, however, that a murder had taken place in the pool area. But when we were in the dressing rooms, I didn't feel anything at all. And then mm -hmm. later on, I was kind of wandering by the pool by myself and I went underneath the opposite stairs and it just felt very uncomfortable. And so I left right away. And one of my son's uh, girl, friend who was a girl was with us that night and she walked under and she came out shivering. And then uh, a couple of other people had the same reaction. But I wonder if that too, um, oh, oh, I forgot the end of that story. We found out that she was, yeah, she was murdered in the dressing rooms, but that's where the body was stuffed. So I don't know if that means anything or not. Also, you know, if you stand on a battlefield at Gettysburg, it, you know, it, it, it feels like you're seeped in something. Um, but I mean, if you listen to people who really do this, there are active hauntings and residual hauntings. So if you were on the battlefield, it would definitely be a residual for soldiers fighting over and over and over again um, in these, you know, devastating battles that killed so many. I also had fun with the Peace River Ghost Trackers, though, because when we were doing the Spanish military hospital in St. Augustine, and I was in the front with the cameras, and I was looking at one of them, and I saw a large black mass forming over the screen. And I called to one of the guys, I was like, Gary, Gary, oh my God, come over here. Am I seeing something? What is that? And it's like, I, I can't believe it. I think I am actually seeing something. And he said, yes you are seeing Scott's shadow as he walks across the other side of the room. <laughs> so, but that's one of the reasons I love going out with these guys because their idea is to find out, is there something, you know, that's causing what people see as haunted. I, I have a totally open mind. I, I don't believe I've seen anything that uh, actually proves haunted yet, um, yeah. but I'm not denying that it could be out there. Yeah. That's a, that's an interesting look at, at the writing craft from the outside let's let's turn inside for a minute I, i'm i'd love to know if you have a 
a, a writing schedule, certain time of the day, a system or a process, um, given you know the number of words you, you've already written, um, you know what, what does your process look like? You know this day and age. Um, it's probably non-existent <laughs> because when I started out, I was home with three very young children. In fact, I always can follow my career by I really started submitting when my fourth child was born. And I received my first advance in time to pay the hospital when my fifth child was born. <laughs> so I always count them that way. Um, I, I just always worked around the kids at first, which was great. Um, and I still, it sounds weird, but I still appreciate it to this day because I do know people who need quiet um, and they need to be in a room by themselves or they need a certain this or that. And uh, thanks to the kids, I seriously feel like a Dr. Seuss novel. I can write on a train. I can write on a plane in a car going far. Um, they just, I think they gave me the ability to laser in on what I'm doing. And so I will write when I'm traveling. Um, I try to establish something that's a, <laughs> that's a serious time frame. But right now I'm living with my daughter. Uh, she had been in the hospital and I came over here. And then, you know, then of course we all became homebound. And uh, so I'm living with a small child once again. And the baby is 23 months old and she's just I'm not interested in me getting anything done, but I do, we do try to set it up so that, you know, I, I walk into another room and I'm a little bit away from her because she really likes to play with the computer. It doesn't help a lot. Um, but I don't, I don't have any special time. I just kind of grab anything that you can and um, pretty much so has always been that way. But I, I also don't think it matters. I think it's some people, it is important to have set time. Some people it's not. Some people write a lot of words in one day. Uh, some people have a certain amount. Nope, that's what they're going to do. And I don't think it, any of it matters. It matters what works for you, who, you know, each writer is individual. And, um, you know, creating a novel doesn't really come with, you know, a set of time rules. It's just whatever you can do. I do think what's important, though, is because I've known people who work, or people who are, I mean, we all work, but you know, people who have day jobs, people who are, are watching a lot of children, people who have time restraints. And I think it's important that whatever you decide you can give to it, you definitely give. If you're gonna get so many pages done a week, try to get those pages done a week. Life happens to all of us and you may fall off. If you fall off, it's like you know the proverbial horse, get back on. Um, most important thing you can do is really follow through and finish. Um, I think, and then, you know, I, please remember I can be wrong on anything, but <laughs> I think one of the other important things is people, because we hear an editor, oh my God, editors are busy. They're not going to go past your first three pages. And so people will become so obsessed with their first three pages that they don't go on. I think the important thing is to get down all your excitement, all your passion, you know, everything that you feel for your project get that down, then you can go back and you can go through it, you can fix it, you can change it, you can do all kinds of things, but you don't want to lose your own excitement for your project. You need, you need to just soar with it and then, then you can pick it apart.
Well said. Uh, I have one last question for you that I, I hope will be fun. It's very open-ended, no right or wrong, but uh, you've been in this industry for a long time. I'm sure you've seen a lot of things. Um, this year's been kind of crazy. Where do you think the publishing industry is going to be in three or five years? Wow. <laughs> I think that's like most questions these days. Um, I don't know when this first started out, a lot of people were saying, oh, this must be wonderful for books, but I'm not sure it's so wonderful because bookstores, of course, are closed. I think if I miss anything, I, I miss a bookstore because I love I, I love the physical thing about books. I like to look at the front. I like to look at the back. I mean, yes, I know you could do this online, but for me, it's much more fun to do it in a bookstore. I just love going through everything in a bookstore. Um, obviously, not many paperback or hardcover books will have sold during this period. I do think that online sales have probably gone well. I do think too, that when this is all over, people will be excited. Um, you know, a certain pop part of the population, I know I will be, when we can go back through bookstores. Publishing has had to change and segue constantly. Uh, so the one thing I can say is, yes, it will still be there. All right, Heather Graham, big takeaways. What you got, JD? I'm still trying to figure out how many kids she's got. <laughs> <laughs> Lots. I, I, yeah, I think, she's, I think she said five. Five, right? I think that's what she said, yeah. Yeah, like I just cannot imagine. I mean, having a toddler running around, just one running around the house. <laughs> um, but she brought up a good point. Like, if you can learn to write in that environment, you you can write anywhere. And what it what it actually reminds me of one of my buddies. You know, he, he was career military, and and he was over in Afghanistan, he was over in Iraq, and he was here and he was there. Um, he's retired now, um, but like he can sit down anywhere and just take a nap. Yeah, you know, it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter where it is. And he said he could do it on the battlefield. You know, it didn't matter what was happening around him. He could close his eyes and he he could shut it all out and he could take a nap. And that's kind of where it sounds like Heather is in the PTSD writer version of this whole thing. <laughs> you know, she's able to just block out everything going on around her, knock out her, you know, 300, 500 or in, in her case, probably a couple thousand words. Um, in order to hit the kind of volume she does and just and just keep going. And, you know, frankly, if, if she could do it, uh, th there's zero excuse for the rest of us. Well, yeah, I, it's a good point, right? Like, it's not, um, I think that's a, just, it's just a professional attitude, right? You can substitute five kids for, you know, construction at home or, uh, you know, certain problems you're having, like, there's always going to be something that's going to try and keep you from the words. But I, I think the pro is the one who sits down and, and does it every day or every week or whatever the schedule is and just does it when they don't feel like doing it. And it's that sort of consistency is the only way to find success. Yeah, we, we've all got obstacles and, and you need to decide whether you know those obstacles are more important than you getting those words down on paper um, and, and make a conscious decision there that, no, I, I want to become a full-time writer. I want to do this as a for a living and I'm going to make it happen you know, one way or the other. And I think we, we've all been there. Like I've, I've gotten up at, at four o'clock in the morning, five o'clock in the morning to write. My wife is, is getting up at five o'clock every day, you know, and she's been doing it for months now to knock out a novel. Um, you know, you just, you, whether it's that or you, you write, you know, after everybody goes to sleep at night you, you got to find the time and you got to get it done yeah so true so i wanted to ask you too about uh about dracul because i loved what heather said about uh research and travel and especially her love for new orleans which you you know you mentioned in the, at the top of the show uh 
how much how much research do you do? How how much on location research do you? How important is that in your process? For me, it's not as important as as it is you know for for other people. I mean, there was an, obviously a lot of research involved in that, but the Stoker family had already done a lot of the heavy lifting there. Um, I got to use all of Bram Stoker's original journals and his notes, things that he had on his desk when he actually wrote Dracula. You know, so it was unprecedented access to to that type of material. And and Dacre Stoker, uh, Bram's great grandnephew, uh, he you know what, what's not down on paper, he's got up in his head. They, you know, like at, at one point, I needed to know what Bram Stoker's bedroom looked like when he was six years old. And, and Dacre was able to tell me um, not only what the bedroom looked like, but, you know, what type of bed he had. And, you know, his bat- mattress was made of straw and it was like this. And, you know, next bedroom over was so-and-so's and this one, like he knew the whole layout of the house. Like those types of things are, are priceless. Um, but we also, we did have to do some research because essentially what we did, um, to keep a long story short, is he told me when I started this process that, um, Bram Stoker's publisher had removed the first 103 pages of the original Dracula manuscript um, because Bram originally tried to sell it as a, a true story and they weren't willing to, to do that. So they cut all of these pages out. Um, it, and we basically wanted to recreate that for the, the prequel. Um, so you, you, utilizing his notes and the things that he left behind, we were able to put that story back together, but we did want to verify it. So I learned that only one copy of the Dracula manuscript actually survived or has been found. Um, and it was found in a barn here in Pennsylvania, of all things. And Dacre actually knows how it got there. Um, but Paul Allen, at one point, he bought it at auction for a little under a million dollars, and he's got it locked up um, in, in Seattle. Uh, so I reached out to Paul Allen's people, and they allowed us to come out to Seattle and actually view the original Dracula manuscript. And we were hoping that those 103 pages would be there. Um, unfortunately, they're not. Uh, the very first page, it, the 103 is crossed out at the top and it's got a, a one next to it. <laughs> um, and everything beyond that is rechaptered and retitled. Um, what we quickly learned is, as, as we flip through all these pages is, you know, Bram didn't have a word processor. Um, so when he changed something, it, it was changed in the manuscript. You know, so there's, there's a lot of notes in the margins, um, uh, deleted scenes. He just drew a line through. Um, so we started focusing on those deleted scenes. And what we quickly realized is those deleted scenes referred back to things that happened in those first 103 pages. Um, so he chopped the 103 pages out, you know, started the book at Jonathan Harker on the train and anything related to those first 103, he went back and he just drew a line through and deleted from the, the manuscript. So we were able to use the deleted scenes, which were still visible to us to, to verify things. So wow. in that case, there, there was a lot of research involved. Um, but the novel itself took place, you know, largely in, in Dublin, Ireland, which I had never been to before. Um, and the first time I was actually there was for the book tour. And it was a very surreal experience for me because I, I used uh, Google Earth and things like that in order to get the streets right. Um, you know, Dublin being such a, an old place, a lot of the buildings are still there, you know, from Bram's time until now, like we, we visited some of the, you know, the pubs and things that Bram went to and churches that Bram went to and things like that are, they still exist. Um, but it, it, it was real to me because, you know, a church that Bram went to, you know, there, there would have been a field next to it or nothing there, you know, on, on the side of it in his time in our time, there's a McDonald's there, you know? So I, I was looking at the streets through his eyes. I still saw them that way, but with like an overlay of, of modern times. Um, so, so that was very strange. Um, but for the most part, you know, I think nowadays we can rely on the internet or we can pull a lot of information that we need from the internet in order to get those, those facts straight. And you really do have to, because I had a scene in, in fourth monkey where I, you know, it's at the opening of the book, there's a mailbox where somebody is dropping something. Um, and I had the flow of traffic incorrect in, in the, the original manuscript. It was setting uh, North and South instead of South and North oh, in the wow. opposite direction. Um, and a, the copy editor, or one of the editors of the publisher caught that, um, you know, and it's not something I caught, but I know if it would have made it through to publication, 
and anybody familiar with Chicago would have raised their hand and said, oh, wait a minute, you can't drive that way. And, you know, those, those type, types of problems, if they can be weeded out, they need to be. Neat. Yeah. Um, and I also loved Heather's love of history. Uh, she, she's a real history buff, doing reenactments. I mean, doing, doing the, uh, the ball in New Orleans. Uh, and I love the way that kind of filters in with her paranormal stuff. So it's like a, it's a nice cross section of two things that might not necessarily go together that work really well for her. Yeah, when I saw her at BoucherCon, she actually jumped up on stage with the band and was singing. Yeah. You know, like you, she just, she she has fun no matter where she goes, and she keeps an open mind, I think, to a lot of this stuff. Uh, one of the things she brought out that I, I think is huge, and I, I don't know if, if people caught this, but she mentioned how, how a lot of first-time authors get obsessed with their first couple of pages. Yes. Um, and yeah, that's so true. I, I see a lot of manuscripts with my mentoring clients or people that, that want me to help them out um, where the first you know, couple pages, first couple chapters are extremely polished. You know, they, they read, you know, read as, as good as any published novel, um, but then it just falls off a cliff, you know, and, and it's because they spent, you know, two years working on those first three pages and, you know, six months writing, writing the rest of the book. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's, you got to carry that through, through all of it. I mean, I've brought this up a million times. It, it, that book's got to be a five-star read for anybody to really pick it up. And, you know, from an agent to an editor or whether you self-publish for, for it to sustain you, you, you need to write a five-star read and it can't just be in those first opening, opening chapters. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. It was a great conversation with Heather. I mean, she's such a pro. She's so seasoned. Uh, and like you said, there, there's a real sense of fun about her. Like she just, Seemed to, I mean, I'm sure she's been interviewed hundreds of times, and yet it's it still seemed like she was enjoying the process and uh, and was really open and and uh, giving with, with her uh, advice. So uh, thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah, great person. And if you see her at one of the conferences, don't be afraid to to walk up and say hello. She'll she'll t talk to you and tell you you know all these these little stories. She's a great person. Nice, nice. So who do we have next week? So next week we have Joe Hart. Uh, Joe, uh, I know Joe from way back. He, he was one of, uh, my early guests on the horror writers podcast when I was doing that, uh, six, six years or so ago. And, uh, Joe writes really great thrillers. He's got, uh, he's sort of got legs and like you legs in the indie world and the trad world. And, uh, just, a, just an interesting guy. I think it's going to be a, a fun conversation. All right. Looking forward to it. Excellent. All right. Well, uh, to our listeners, we appreciate your support. And if you like what you're hearing, please tell a friend or consider leaving us a review on iTunes. Until next time, have a great week of writing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers, Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.